All right, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis 34. Uh, One of the advantages of going through a book of the Bible verse by verse is that the Bible gets to set the agenda. And when we come to hard passages of Scripture that we might otherwise wish to skip, uh, we can hold fast to the truth that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is thus profitable for us. And so as we come to such a passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to read it, and then we're going to see uh, what God has to teach us through it. Uh, So follow along with me as I read for us Genesis 34, beginning in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem, and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised, that we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we'll be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, 
These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? May God bless the reading of his word. The Bible is an honest book. Sometimes it's brutally honest, which can be offensive to some people. A couple of weeks ago, I came across uh, an article by the Washington Post where they had published this story that the Bible had been pulled out of some Utah schools. Uh, after a bill allowing school districts to ban pornographic or indecent books from Utah schools was passed uh, last year, someone apparently submitted a complaint about the Bible, arguing that uh, the text was pornographic by the standards laid out in the bill. A school district then determined that the Bible was not age-appropriate for elementary and middle school-aged kids and pulled it from elementary and middle schools, though uh, it would remain in high school libraries. Uh, the, the decision has been uh, appealed by another person in the district, but the reality of the world we live in is that there are people who uh, want the Bible in school libraries, and there are people who are offended by the Bible being in school libraries. And uh, such a passage, I guess, is one of those, one of those uh, reasons for, for such a debate. Uh, as Christians, how are we to think through these issues? How are we to, to think through a passage like this in the Bible? A passage about rape 
and murder. As I said, the Bible is an honest book. It shows us the the good, the bad, and the ugly. Here we have mostly bad and ugly. But when we compare this passage with the closing verses of the previous chapter, chapter 33, we can see where things kind of went off the rails. If you look back at at chapter 33, beginning in verse 16, you see that Esau has returned to Seir and that Jacob has journeyed to Succoth and then he journeys on to Shechem where he buys a piece of land and he builds this altar to the Lord. However, Jacob's summons was to Bethel, not Shechem. It was about a, a day's journey away from Bethel, if you can believe it, about 15 to 20 miles. But he stops short of obeying the word of the Lord and instead enters into a partnership with this Canaanite community. And the consequence of his disobedience would be the rape of his daughter and the massacre of the Shechemites. It's no wonder then that God is not mentioned anywhere in this chapter. Genesis 34. God was mentioned at the end of Genesis 33, where Jacob erected uh, an altar and, and called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And God will be mentioned at the beginning of Genesis 35, where he will say to Jacob, uh, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. But God is not mentioned in Genesis 34, which tells us something about this passage, doesn't it? that they had forgotten God. But even though human sin runs rampant in this passage, we see God's grace on full display. We're going to look at this account in three stages. First, we're going to look at the defiling of Dinah. And second, we're going to look at the marriage proposal of Hamor and Shechem, which is going to include the proposal to their own countrymen. And then finally, we're going to look at the vengeance of the sons of Jacob. So first we see the defiling of Dinah. Look with me back at verse one. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now we we don't know exactly how old Dinah is at this point. Uh, Scholars suggest that she's somewhere between the ages of of 13 and and 15 years old, which uh, then begs the question, why is a young girl her age uh, going out to look at the women of the land unchaperoned? Right, Girls of marriageable age were not permitted to leave the tents of their people to go about visiting without A chaperone. How is it that Dinah manages to sneak away seemingly unnoticed? Well, the text gives us a clue. We read that Dinah was the daughter of Leah, the unloved wife of Jacob. Leah was less favored than Rachel, and thus Leah's children would be less favored than Rachel's children. Uh, Dinah, the only girl among Jacob's 
children appears to be of little interest, little concern to Jacob, which puts her in a vulnerable position. Without a father to show her the value of being a daughter of the promise of God, she would then take her cue from the women of the land. Now, if you've been following along in our study of Genesis, then you know that the patriarchs viewed the Canaanite women not favorably. Uh, Abraham didn't want his servant to uh, take a wife for his son Isaac from among the Canaanite women. Uh, Esau married two Canaanite women who made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah, which prompted Rebekah to convince Isaac to send Jacob away instead of marrying one of the Canaanite women. The Canaanites, after all, were under God's curse, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. And so over and over again, you see this tension within the people of God where they are forced to dwell in a land that is occupied by Canaanites, and yet not assimilate with them. This is a tension we wrestle with as well. How how do we as God's people maintain our unique identity as we are surrounded by people who are not God's people? How do we maintain the importance of the Bible in the public sphere as we are surrounded by people who want the Bible removed from the public sphere. This is a tension. This is the tension of the Christian life. Jacob did well to resist going down to Seir with Esau, but he has failed to maintain that distinctness from those who were not people of faith, such as the Shechemites. He has allowed his daughter to roam freely in the land without care or concern for her well-being. And as a result, the unthinkable happens. Look at verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Dinah here is the victim of rape. The word rape might not be in the text, but that's that's what this is. He saw, he seized, he lay with her, he humiliated her. Dinah is violated in the most humiliating way possible by a man who is considered to be the prince of the land, yet who acts anything but princely towards her. Just as Eve in the Garden of Eden saw the fruit and wanted the fruit and took of the fruit, so also Shechem sees this beautiful woman and wants her and takes her for himself. Shechem is showing himself to be an offspring of the serpents who comes to steal and kill and destroy, John 10, verse 10 says. And how slithery he is. After violating Dinah, verse 3 says the Shechem's soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the woman and spoke tenderly to her. 
there's a, a parallel here to 2 Samuel chapter 13. You don't necessarily have to turn there. But in 2 Samuel chapter 13, uh, David's son Amnon is lovesick with his sister Tamar. Eventually, he gets himself into a position where he can take her by force. And it says that uh, being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And, and then it says that uh, Amnon hated her with very great hatred. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Well, unlike Amnon, Shechem continues to have positive feelings towards Dinah, although those positive feelings could be brought into question given how he's treated her thus far. He does things completely backwards, doesn't he? Now, first his soul is drawn to her and, and then he loves her and then he decides to speak tenderly to her. Shechem epitomizes so many men who have thoughts that they can simply take what they want. Godly men don't operate that way. The correct order is that we speak to a woman so that we get to know her. Then we love her. Then our soul is drawn to her as we covenant with her in marriage. And and then we are drawn together, not not only in soul, but also in body. This this is how you're going to win her heart. Not, Not by violating her first, but by treating her with dignity and respect. Shechem, on the other hand, is simply used to getting what he wants. Thus, Shechem says to his father in verse 4, get me this girl for my wife. As a father of two daughters, I, I cannot imagine this happening to one of them. Our daughters need to know that we will stick up for them and will support them in their time of need. Notice what Jacob does in verse 5. It says, now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. When word comes to Jacob that his daughter Dinah has been raped, he is silent. What we see from Jacob can only be described as passive indifference. He doesn't care. Jacob had an obligation to protect Dinah, regardless of whether she was the daughter of Leah or Rachel. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care that she was wandering around without supervision. He doesn't care that she was deviled. He doesn't Care As today is Father's Day, what kind of father doesn't care? I hope every father in this room does care. We get a different response, don't we, from the, the sons of Jacob? Verse 7, it says that the sons of Jacob had come in from the field. As soon as they heard of it, 
And the men were indignant and very angry. Because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. The sons of Jacob care. In Deuteronomy 22, uh, God made a way to protect young women from such things as rape. In Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 to 29, God says, If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed then seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. You may not divorce her all his days. The sons of Jacob recognize that such a thing must not be done. They recognize that there is something different about them, that that God has specifically covenanted with them, that they are to be distinct, they are to be set apart, they are to be holy. Jacob may not recognize this, but his sons sure do. And Shechem, in a sense, he, he's almost appealing to this law in Deuteronomy 22. He has seen this young woman who, whom he considers to be fair game and has defiled her so that the logical course of action is marriage. And this brings us to the marriage proposal. Hamor, the, son, the, the father of Shechem, uh, comes to, to Jacob and says to him in verse 8, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Hamor sees this as an opportunity to assimilate with with Jacob, who has recently come to them with, with many people and flocks and herds. The Shechemites would have likely been a, a family clan around the same size as Jacob's clan. And so Hamor is thinking that if they, if they come together and become one people, it will just benefit everybody. And it sounds really enticing. But then look at how Hamor and Shechem pitch the idea to their own people. In verses 21 to 23, they say to them, these men are at peace with us, so let them dwell in the land and trade in it, and let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. There's only one condition, and I'm not going to lie. This is a, a pretty big condition. Every male must be circumcised. That's it, they say. That's, that's the only condition. If we do this, then, get this, their livestock and their property and their beasts will all be ours. Okay, so Hamor tells Jacob that it will be peaceful between them. There'll be peace. You can, you can trade and, and you can have this and, and that. Look at all the possibilities, Jacob. But then he tells his own people that they will get all their stuff. But then Shechem himself speaks up in verse 11. He says, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. 
Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you I'll give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. Shechem offers an unusually high bride price, and the sons of Jacob respond in verses 14 to 17, uh, you need to become circumcised just as we are circumcised. Only then can we enter into covenant with you, giving our daughters to you and taking your daughters to ourselves. If you don't do this, we'll, we'll take our daughter and go. Right now, it's quite likely that the Shechemites were familiar with the practice of circumcision. Circumcision was um, often seen as a, uh, a right of marriage for young men. Hence, verse 19 says that the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. But just like their father, the sons of Jacob have acted deceitfully. You know, like father, like sons. They do not present this offer with the best of intentions. They know that this procedure is going to be very painful and very debilitating for the men for several days. But at the same time, notice, notice that the sons of Jacob refer to their sister Dinah as their daughter. In, in some respect, they are acting more like a father to her than their own father is. We'll take our daughter and go. Well, Hamor and, and Shechem, uh, they bring the request of the sons of, of Jacob to the men of the city in verse 24, says that uh, all who went out of the gate of, this, of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem and every male was circumcised all who went out of the gate of his city. Now, how they managed to convince every man to do this is beyond me. But somehow they convinced them. And, and on the third day after the, after the procedure, when, when the pain and the inflammation and the fever, which would have all been a result of, of the, the procedure, were at its peak, Simeon and Levi, two of the uh, oldest full brothers of Dinah. That's important. Two of the oldest full brothers of Dinah, they took it upon themselves to avenge their sister and her good name. And, and here we see the vengeance of the sons of Jacob. Uh, if Dinah is around 13 to 15 years old, then Simeon and Levi are, are likely in their late teens, early 20s. Verse 25 says that they, they strapped on their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Then the sons of Jacob plundered the city, looting everything valuable and taking the women and children as captives. Now, it's in these verses that we notice something rather interesting. Where was Dinah while all of these negotiations were taking place? She was in the house of Shechem. When Shechem and Hamor came to, to Jacob to ask for Dinah's hand in marriage, Dinah was already in Shechem's house. These talks were simply a, a formality. In Shechem's mind, the, the deal was as good as done. Thus, 
Simeon and Levi are right to want justice. But instead of justice rightly pursued, they pursue an unsanctioned holy war. Later in Genesis 49, Jacob will say of his sons Simeon and Levi, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. The final judgment upon them is that they did not seek justice in the right way. They hated the Shechemites with complete hatred. And what often happens is that we become the people we hate. They, they have a right to be angry, yes. They have a right to seek justice, yes. But in their anger, they have become just like the Shechemites, taking advantage of them by deception and violence. One pastor pointed out that they may have been trying to repay the Shechemites in kind. The very instrument of the human body that was used by Shechem to defile Dinah would be the very instrument by which the Shechemites would be destroyed. The very male organ that violated Dinah would itself be violated and used to their destruction. There is, however, here an abuse of the holy. In Genesis 17, God gave Abraham the covenant sign of circumcision, which indicated to the world around them that the Lord was their God and that they were his people. But Simeon and Levi, they've used Israel's most cherished symbol of faith as the means to carry out their murderous plan. Such, such a desecration was deserving of condemnation. Hence Jacob's words in Genesis 49. As one commentator put it, the sign of the covenant was appropriated by Shechem to gratify his lust, by Hamor to increase his cattle, and by the sons of Jacob as a cover for murder. The sons of Jacob had taken what God had given as a holy religious sign and used it for their own wicked ends. How does Jacob respond to all of this? He's rightly upset. But notice with whom he is upset. In verse 30, Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Now notice, Jacob is not upset that his daughter has been defiled. He's not upset that Hamor and Shechem had the audacity to come to him with a marriage proposal. He's not upset that Simeon and Levi have spilled innocent blood or that they've misused the sign of God's covenant. No, no, no. Jacob is upset because of how this will make him look to the people around him. Jacob's only concern is his 
survival. Well, Simeon and Levi, they, they aren't buying Jacob's sob story. They, they fire back. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You see, even though Simeon and Levi didn't go about things the right way, their question is rightly put. Hence why the chapter ends this way. There is no answer from Jacob because what can he say? No one in this story comes out looking good. Everyone looks bad, but by far the worst is Jacob. The whole thing is his fault. And this is surprising to us, given what just transpired at Peniel, where, where, where Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed, remember? Jacob became Israel. He was reconciled to his God and, and then reconciled to his brother. He was a new man. But then he failed to obey all that the Lord commanded him. Right back in Bethel, in, in Genesis 28, Jacob made a vow to the Lord. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. But Jacob doesn't quite make it to Bethel. No, he comes to, to Shechem and he thinks, this is close enough. But it wasn't where God told him to go. And you can't help but wince when you think about the fact that had Jacob returned to Bethel, as God had said, none of this would have happened. The rape, the desecration, the massacre, the disgrace, all of it was a result of Jacob's disobedience. Jacob and his family would indeed be a stench in the land. Though God had appointed Abraham and his offspring to be a blessing to the nations, they had become a curse. Even though they were to be distinct from the nations, the, the purpose of their distinctness was so that they would be a blessing to the nations and that they would lead the nations in the worship of the one true God. But they failed. The nations aren't worshiping the one true God at this point. Their only hope and our only hope, because in many ways, we are like Jacob and his family. Our only hope is found in the true and better son of Jacob, Jesus Christ, who took the condemnation for sin we deserved. Uh, Charles Wesley, in his hymn, Depth of Mercy, captures this well. Depth of mercy can there be, mercy still reserved for me. Can my God his wrath forbear, me the chief of sinners spare? I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. I, my master, have denied, 
I afresh have crucified, oft profaned his hallowed name, put him to an open shame. There for me the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love, I know, I feel. Jesus weeps, but loves me still. Now incline me to repent. Let me now my, my fall lament. Now my foul revolt deplore. Weep, believe, and sin no more. Human sin floods the pages of the Bible, so much so that schools are taking the Bible out of their libraries. But greater than all human sin is the grace of God towards sinners. We'll see that in the next chapter, as God does not say, I'm getting rid of Jacob and I'm starting afresh. No, he goes back to Jacob and he says, arise now and go to Bethel, as I have said. He is not done with Jacob, and just like, and in the same way, he is not done with us. It is the grace of God toward sinners. It's, it's this grace that caused 14-year-old Leah Sharibu to stand firm in her faith. On February 19th, 2018, Leah was kidnapped by Boko Haram from her school in Dapchi, Nigeria, along with approximately 100 other girls. A month later, every girl was released except for Leah because she refused to deny her faith in Jesus Christ. Leah has been declared a slave for life by the extremists who abducted her, and she remains in captivity more than five years later. But when all the other girls were uh, claiming to be Muslim so that they could go free, Leah understood that she was free in Christ already and thus boldly declared that she belongs to Jesus. This, this is how you stand out in the culture. The world is discipling us in, in a million different ways. Through TV, movies, songs, department stores, we are being taught to live a certain way. And the answer is not found in removing ourselves from the culture or becoming passive or by exploiting those around us. The answer is found in engaging our unbelieving friends, family, neighbors with the hope of the gospel and that we would live lives distinct from the culture. The world needs to see that, that we are different, that there's something strange about us. If all we're doing is simply dressing up on Sunday morning and singing a few songs and eating some bread and drinking some juice and hearing a guy speak from an old book for a few minutes, and, and other than that, we're basically the same as everyone else, then what's the point? But if we have a different moral ethic, a different sexual ethic, where, where the world looks at us and, and thinks that we're strange to live that way, that is what is going to be attractive. We're, we're presenting people with a different world, not, not this world, a different world, a better world, 
where all things are being made right. The world may not like what we say. They may not like what we sing. They may not like what we preach. But it's what the world needs. All of us need the forgiveness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? We are the ones who can bring that good news to them. And so may God give us the grace to do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, as hard as it is. Uh, we ask you to speak to our hearts through it. Uh, if we have been tempted to abuse the holy, we pray that you would convict us. If we have failed to see our responsibility to be a blessing to the nations, if, if we are just going along with whatever everyone else is doing because we don't, we don't want to look strange. We pray that you would convict us. If we have become blissfully unaware of our own potential for sin, we pray that you would convict us. As we read this passage with all of its sadness, we pray that you would convict us of the, the truthfulness of your word. You are holy and you are good. Your people are not yet. We are not yet. And so, Lord, we look to you and to you alone for this grace. That's found only through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and in whose name we pray. Amen.